If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 26. As Jordan Green mentioned earlier, we are resuming our study in Matthew. It's been a minute since we left off in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Throughout this book, Matthew uh, presents Jesus not differently than the other Gospel writers, but there's an emphasis on teaching. In fact, the whole book of Matthew is organized around five major teaching blocks, or what are called five discourses. It begins with the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. It ends in the 5th with the Olivet Discourse, which we just covered. So Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven, making it clear that He is the King from heaven who has come to save a people who will be citizens of that kingdom, who are called to follow the King, to believe in Him. So teaches us about who He is, about what the kingdom is, and how we are to respond to the realities of the kingdom. But when we turn to Matthew 26, which is our text for today, in verse 1, we read, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples. So, all these sayings are referring at least to the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. But I think the reason it says all here, this formula is repeated at the end of each of the five discourses, but here it adds the word all, I think it's a way of saying when he had finished all of these discourses, all of these teachings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's as if he's saying it's time to step out of the classroom It's time to go to the cross. I've been teaching you about who I am and about what I'm here to do. Now it's time to do it. But the instruction is not over. It just simply won't come to us in the form of sermons or discourses. It will come through various narrative events as we follow Jesus to the cross. We are going to learn that this is not just something that happened in history, but it has significance for our lives. We are going to learn about the significance of the passion of Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning is very intentional in teaching us about this. You could say that it is a long setup for the crucifixion that is to come. It is the setting of a story. All stories have a setting. This is the setting for the passion narrative that is about to come to us. And through looking at it, we are going to learn why the death of Christ matters for our life. The passage is divided into three sections. It's kind of hard to trace them if you're just reading it, but I want you to notice as we read through it, there are three houses in this passage. And I think that's how... The passage is organized. There's the house of Caiaphas, where the religious leaders plot 
kill Jesus. There's the house of Simon the leper, where a woman pours ointment over Jesus' head. And then there's the house of a certain man, as we're told, where Jesus would celebrate the Passover with his disciples. The Passover clearly informs the significance of the cross, but I think that what we find is we walk through these three houses also teaches us much about why it matters that Jesus had to go to a cross. So listen for clues as we tour these houses, as we read these verses together. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 30. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city, of a certain, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So when you're studying a story... If you want to understand what it means, you need to understand the way it's organized. So one of the ways to see the organization of a story is simply to look at its plot structure, the way the plot unfolds. And that would be a good way to go here. But there's another way to see the way a passage is organized, and that is to look at the characters within a passage. And as we look at the character, sometimes what the author is doing is he's intentionally putting certain characters next to other characters by way of comparison or contrasting. And that's the way that a passage holds together. I think that's what's going on here. As we walk through these three houses, we see different characters contrasted with one another. And as we look at that contrast, we see meaning begin to emerge. And so what I want to do this morning is look at three contrasts, three comparisons that will help us understand the meaning of the cross, the significance of the crucifixion. Let's begin in Caiaphas' house where we find our first contrast. If you want to write it down, it's the contrast of plans. More specifically, the contrast of the plots of man and the plans of God. See, there's two planning parties that are at work in this passage. And what we're going to learn as we look at them is that God is sovereign in the crucifixion. The first planning party is found there in verses 3 to 5. The chief priests and the elders, they are gathered together in the palace of the high priest. Caiaphas was his name. And they're plotting together. Their plot is to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill Him. Very explicitly. But, part of their plan is to not do that during the feast so as to not cause an uproar. So, that's the plan. Kill Jesus by stealth and to not do it during the feast. But this is the thing. (laughs) Jesus is not caught off guard by their plans and their plots. They're not actually that stealthy. Jesus has been telling His disciples that he that this was going to happen to Him maybe even before the chief priests thought about making these plans. At the very beginning of the passage, He announces to them that the Passover is two days away and it's time. It's time for the Son of Man to be delivered over to the chief priests and to the elders to be crucified. 
He's repeatedly said this on the way to Jerusalem. You can go back and trace it beginning in chapter 16, verse 21. He knows he's going to the cross. That's where he's been going all along. That's why he came. He was laid in a cradle. The God of the universe took on flesh, was born and put in a manger, a cradle, only to one day go to a cross. The plots of the chief priests won't catch him by surprise. And interestingly, they won't even be able to fully fulfill their plan. They want to catch him by stealth and not during the feast. But later, when Jesus sends his disciples to find the place to celebrate the Passover, this is in verse 18, he instructs them to say to the owner of the house, did you catch this when we read it? The teacher says, my time is at hand. He is not subject to the machinations of man. His time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Who's calling the shots? The chief priest calling the shots? Is Pilate calling the shots? No. Jesus is in control. The Passover lamb, friends, is going to be offered on the Passover because that's the way that God planned it. We see the same thing going on in the later plots of Judas in verses 14 to 16, where Judas goes to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him or to deliver him over. It's the same word in the Greek. You see, Judas thinks, I'm going to deliver him over to you. But remember, we were told at the very beginning that Jesus was about to be delivered up. It's by the will of God. It's not by the planning of the chief priest. It's not by the work of Judas Iscariot. I mean, Jesus even predicts, and he had predicted earlier already, he knew Judas was going to betray him before Judas even decided to betray him. God's in control of what's going on. The Last Supper in verse 24, Jesus says this about His betrayal. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son is betrayed. So, the chief priests... Judas are responsible for their behavior, but Jesus is not a victim of what they're doing. He is in complete control. He's doing what was already written about Him hundreds of thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. In a passage like Isaiah 53, for example, that reads, He was stricken and smitten by whom? By God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him 
degree. Friends, the first thing that you need to know right out of the gates in Matthew 26 about the crucifixion of Jesus that is coming is that it was never an accident. It was always according to the sovereign and eternal decree of God. As Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2, speaking to the Jews, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus is not a victim. You need to know that. He was a volunteer. He knew what He was doing. He laid down His life for the sheep. As I read in John 10 this morning in my Bible reading, He laid down His life for the sheep of His own accord. No one takes it from Him, He says. I lay it down of my own accord and the authority I have to lay it down is the same authority that I have to raise it up again. Not a victim. He's a volunteer. The cross is not a tragedy. It is the triumph of God to accomplish His purposes of saving a people for Himself. The tragedy is that He came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. They're plotting to kill Him. They're planning to betray Him. They don't get that He's the one that they need. And that He had to die to provide what they needed. Let's look now at the second contrast moving from the house of Caiaphas to the house of Simon the leper. We've seen a contrast between the plots of man and the plans of God. Let's now look at the contrast between the price paid by a woman to honor Jesus and the price paid to Judas to betray Him. It teaches us that we must value Jesus. That we must value specifically His death more than anything that money could buy, anything that this world has to offer, anything in this life. But before I get to the main contrast, the contrast of a price paid by the woman and a price paid to Judas, I want you to notice a smaller contrast. The contrast between the house of power, Caiaphas' house, a house that is full of people who see no value in Jesus, and this second house that we now come to in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper. Likely a man who had been healed by Jesus, but you know what we see in the Scriptures about lepers. If Caiaphas is here on the social ladder, where's Simon the leper? He's at the bottom of the rung. But he's valuable to Jesus. And all of the other outcasts. You know, we're all outcasts. It's just some of us know it. And some of us don't. Simon knew it. 
the woman in this story knew it. And they valued Jesus because they knew that he was a treasure. And that's drawn out in what we see in the woman. And that's the main contrast. The contrast of payment. We're told that this flask of oil that she poured over the head of Jesus was very expensive. Very expensive. Other gospel writers tell us specifically that it was so valuable that it was worth about a year's wages for, you know, a working class person. So in our day, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. That's what she's pouring out on his head. But it was also likely a family heirloom, so it's not only monetary value, there's sentimental value. But this is the point that I want you to get. She does, she's not dumb. It's not like she doesn't know what she's doing. She knows exactly what she's doing. She thinks Jesus is worth it. And so she breaks the neck off of this flask and pours the oil on his head. But his own disciples, they don't think that it was worth it. They say it was a waste. What a waste! We could have got bank on that oil. And then we could have given it to the poor. That's what you've been telling us to do. But the thing of it is, is they don't get what's going on. They think it's a waste because they don't understand what they should understand. Been saying it <laughs> since, since chapter 16. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Do you not get it yet? I mean, even when he's arrested in the garden, they come with clubs like they're, they're trying to stop what is clearly going to happen. But this woman knows. Why do I say she knows? Because we learn from John that this woman is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha, one of Jesus' closest companions. How could she not have heard Jesus talk about his coming death. And I think she believes it. She knows the loss that is coming. And she says, it's worth it because you're worth it. There's another man in the room that I suspect also knew Jesus was going to die. His name was Judas. But he responded very differently from Mary, didn't he? He goes to the priest to sell him out. The woman gave what amounted to a year's wage to honor Jesus. Judas received 30 pieces of silver to betray him. The mention of 30 pieces of silver is important because it tells us something about value. We've seen the way Mary valued Jesus. How did Judas and the chief priests value him? How do you value him? Nobody here thinks he's worth nothing. 
But what is he worth? How valuable is he? You see, the 30 pieces of silver show up in two important texts in the Old Testament, I think both of which are being alluded to here. The first is Exodus 21. There's a law that says if your ox gores a man to death, that man's family gets to set the price on restitution. That family gets to say what you need to pay to restore for this death. That is, if that person wasn't killed, they they could have maybe been stoned. But they could set the price. But if somebody's ox gored a slave to death, there was a price set for restitution. Guess how much it was? 30 pieces of silver. What's Judas think Jesus is worth? Price of a slave. The other reference is to Zechariah 11. There, Zechariah does what a lot of prophets do. They have to kind of do theater for the people so that they can understand the point that God is trying to make to them. So Zechariah is asked by God to go and play the role of a shepherd for Israel so that he can teach them the way that they esteem him, their shepherd. And so Zechariah goes and he plays the role of a shepherd. But the people reject him as they rejected God. That's kind of the point in all of that. And so what he does is he takes one of his two staffs, the staff of favor, and he breaks it. And he says, I quit. Give me my wages. And guess how much they shell out to him? 30 pieces of silver. How much did Israel value their God? Not very much. How much did the chief priest and elders value the one who has demonstrated time and again from the Scriptures and through His own miraculous works that He is the Messiah, they're willing to pay 30 pieces of silver for Him. They have rejected God's work. They have rejected God's King. And that's how much Judas values Him as well. But not Mary. Not Mary. And so what Mary does, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing. You people that are all into your pragmatic things about giving and money, she has done the beautiful thing here. And then he goes on to say, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, this beautiful thing that she has done it will be told in memory of her. What a remarkable statement. This, in Matthew, unnamed woman, what she did will be told as the Gospel goes to the ends of the earth. All the way until when the end comes. Why does Jesus make such a profound statement about the action of this woman? I think there are two reasons. The one is basic, and I think I've already made the point. It's because she values Jesus. And that is the proper response to the gospel that's going to go forth. When we look on Jesus, when we look on what He has done, we say, that's the treasure in the field that I need. 
I will go and sell all that I have in order to obtain that treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is worth giving all that I have in order to gain Him. As Jesus spoke about in some of His first predictions of His coming death, He said, if you lose your life, you will find it. If you lose the things that the world thinks are valuable in order to gain me, you will find life. You will find eternal life. Or you can get your 30 pieces of silver and forfeit your soul. What do you value? That's the first reason her story will be told. The second, I think, has to do with what is symbolized here. Symbolized in ways that she may not have understood, but we understand. This is my own belief. Not all agree with me on this. But when she pours that oil over his head, what would have come to the mind of the original readers? The Old Testament, where kings are anointed by oil being poured over their head. And so I think we're meant to, at a first reading, say, Messiah which is what we've been learning is true of Jesus throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. But then what Jesus says is, she has anointed my body for burial. And there lies the tension in the Gospel that the Messiah, the King of Kings, is also the one that has to go to a cross and die. He's the Savior, the King that we need, the one who suffers for His people so that they may live. So we see not only that we are to value Jesus, but we are to value what He came to do to give His life for us. And if we really do, if that's the calculation that we're making at a heart level through faith, that He's worth it, then it will result, it will look like something that we see here. Extravagant love. Shameless devotion to Jesus. Let's look now at the final scene of our passage in the upper room of a man's house where the disciples celebrated the Passover with Jesus. Here we find another comparison or even a contrast between the woman, which we've already read about, so she's in our mind as we come to the upper room, and Jesus. The reason I think we're meant to see a comparison here is because we're told explicitly at the beginning of both passages that these are events that take place around a table as people are reclined at the table. And we are told in both scenes that something is poured out. And so the comparison has to do with the oil being poured out by the woman and the blood being poured out, which is spoken of later. The woman is willing to give all she had. Why? We've said it. Because she thought Jesus was worth it. So she pours out ointment as a way to pour out 
her love on Jesus. He's worth it. Jesus, too, in pouring out His blood, shows that He loves us. And that He thinks we're worth it. But this is the amazing thing in comparing these two stories. Jesus was worth the price that this woman paid. She is giving out of gratitude for who Jesus is. But in our sin, friends, we are not worthy of Jesus pouring out His love on us. We are not worthy of it because of what we have done in our sin. But Jesus shows His grace to us in spite of who we are. With all of this in view, Jesus takes bread and after blessing it, breaks it and gives it to the disciples. He says, take, eat, this is my body. He takes the cup and when He'd given thanks, He gave it saying, drink, of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Last Supper, Jesus is pointing to the cross. He wants us to see in the bread and the cup that He is about to accomplish something on behalf of His people. He is going to establish a new covenant in His blood. He is going to give us forgiveness of sins once and for all. The woman gave all she had. Jesus gave all He had. It's just He had a lot more. A lot more to give than something that was worth a year's wages. The blood He shed was enough to pay the price for the sins of all of His people, and it was enough to live on for all eternity. What an inestimable worth. What, what, what Jesus has provided for us is beyond what our minds can calculate. And this is part of the reason it's so amazing we're not worthy. We look at the characters in this passage. We see in the woman an amazing character that teaches us how to respond. But as we look at some of the other characters in the passage, and in the passages ahead, we're going to see some points of identification there too. In our sin apart from the grace of God, apart from really the Spirit giving us new life. We're like the chief priests and the elders. We, we gather together and plot against the Lord and His anointed, as Psalm 2 says. We betray. We deny. We don't see the value in who Jesus is. 
and what He has done for us. We reject Him in our sin. We're not worthy. But He still says, you're worth it. And He proves we're worth it by paying the price. The chief priests and elders had plans and plots to kill Him, but God had a bigger plan laid out in Isaiah 53 where we read that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. goes on to say, we all like sheep have gone astray. Every one. You feel that this morning. Every one of us has gone astray. And yet, the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. We're not worthy. But Jesus thought we were worth it. The best news in the world. If we have eyes to see. He poured out His life for us. Doesn't it make sense that we would pour out our lives for Him like this woman did? To cling to Him by faith. To treasure Him is precious. To devote ourselves to Him in love. To follow Him all of our days. I want to make one more observation. I really don't have time. But it's maybe my favorite verse in this passage, and it's a throwaway for so many. Verse 30. So Jesus has predicted that He's going to the cross. The woman has anointed Him for His burial. He's given the Lord's Supper, which points again to the cross. The man knows he's going to die to take on the sins of the world. And what does He do when He's done setting all of this up? We, say, we read, when they had sung a hymn, He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you, do, you get, do you get that? What would you be doing if you knew you were going to your death? Jesus is singing Psalm 118. The last psalm of the Halal Psalms that they would have sung at the end of the Passover meal. This is what Jesus is singing as He goes to His death. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Do you believe that? in the face of difficulties. For His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is singing, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in His sight. As He goes to death, Jesus is singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Friends, Jesus not only paid it all, He did so with the joy that was set before Him. It was His great delight. May we have the same delight in Him. Would you pray with me? Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear the depths
of your love for us, the significance of the sacrifice that was made so that we might respond with extravagant love, faith, and devotion. In Christ's name, amen.